bootleggers and Baptists, or snowflakes. One generation ago, the slogan of campus activists was, speak truth to power. Now it seems to be, fuck truth and grab power. Why the dramatic change in just one generation? The symptoms of political correctness are now well known, kind of a hypersensitivity to perceived slights, vicious verbal attacks on one's ideological enemies and even deviance within one's own ranks, and the use of authoritarian methods to enforce conformity and to silence dissenters and the opposition. Within many university courses, especially in the humanities and some parts of the social sciences, the reading lists are very narrow ideologically. Other sides of debates are excluded. Orthodoxy of opinion is enforced. Speakers from wrong perspectives are disinvited via protest. Those who are invited get shouted down, threatened. In some cases, they're physically coerced. And sometimes it's professors who are doing the imposing of ideological narrowness. But increasingly, particularly in the last decade, it's been students demanding it. So we have a supply and demand side problem where both sides are converging on an undermining of liberal education. Now, there's lots of journalism over the last decade, especially uh, the last five years in my sense, 2015 or so. We're now at the beginning of 2020 that documents what seems to be a very dramatic increase in the amounts of anti-liberal activism inside and outside the classroom at universities and their cultural spillover zones. So major incidents, for example, at Evergreen College on the West Coast over racial exclusion events. Yale University on the East Coast had its big brouhaha over Halloween costumes. Northwestern universities in the north middle part of the country had an ordeal over Title IX applications. The University of Missouri had racial riots and activist professors, one caught on camera, calling for, quote-unquote, muscle to deal with one's enemies. So it's across the United States, and we also find an uptick in incidents at universities in Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. I uh, recommend uh, Benjamin Boyce, B-O-Y-C-E, has a very careful and thorough multi-part documentary on the mess at Evergreen College from uh, uh, his uh, personal experience there as an Evergreen alum. He also did a follow-up interview with me about the connections to postmodernism. That interview uh, is at ThinkSpot and at YouTube, and his documentary is... Uh, also at YouTube. So why is all of this happening? Well, when you read the uh, analysis, there's two hypotheses. They run along a spectrum that are advanced when trying to explain the student activists and their role in the, the devolution. One is that there's a kind of immaturity, cognitive immaturity, moral and or emotional immaturity that is more prevalent among this generation's college students and what's going on at colleges and universities is that they have moved to accommodate so-called rather snowflakes. Now, these are young people who need special protections. And of course, you know, the students are often engaging in all sorts of illiberal activity. Well, those outbursts are perhaps regrettable, but they're excusable to some degree on maybe psychological developmental grounds. For example, one commentator puts it this way, quote, 
The insistence on safe spaces and trigger warnings are particularly infantilizing extensions of the overprotective impulses of what for at least 50 years has been called the nanny state, unquote. I'll put the uh, references in the uh, transcription. Now, a second hypothesis operating at the other end of the spectrum is that uh, it's not immaturity that's going on here, but rather it's a cynical maturity that's deploying apparent immaturity tactically. Now, it's true all educational institutions will have a subpopulation of students who are underprepared for, for university life. You know, university life makes increased intellectual demands, emotional demands, character demands on students, and some students arrive not ready along one of those dimensions or more. But that's been a chronic issue uh, as long as there have been universities. And typically what happens is those students, they drop out, they isolate themselves, or they seek extra help. And what, uh, what direction a given student goes, that's primarily up to those students. But when we find that those students, the apparently immature students, the ones we might be suspected or, or tempted to call snowflakes, when they seem to be playing a significant role in subverting the whole university's norms, you know, something beyond their incapacities, their weaknesses, and their immaturities has to account for their powerful capacity to do so. Now, the two hypotheses, immaturity and a cynical maturity, are not mutually exclusive, but my thesis today is going to be that the second hypothesis explains more. I don't think immaturity is a major cause at all of our higher education problems. I don't even think it's a serious symptom of our problems. Instead, bad philosophy and a principled adversarialism, those are our problems. So again, bad philosophy and bad politics are what's going on, and it is mature and consciously realized. Now, I'm going to uh, just speak on seven related talking points around this theme. So my first point is going to be that the protesting students, they're not snowflakes. They're neither snowflakes that cannot take the heat, nor are they you know, delicate flowers whose feelings have been bruised. University students, they're typically 18 years of age or older. They're adults. Uh, they have two decades or more of life experience. They have seen how many movies uh, with all of the violence that's gone up, on, goes on in movies. They've broken up with boyfriends or girlfriends. They've read very ugly things on the internet and said some of those things themselves. They've viewed pornographic clips. They've lost grandparents. Most of them, uh, most of us when we go through our teen years, we, uh, we knew someone who committed suicide. They've heard distressing news from around the world, and they survived. They're 18 years old with lots of life experience. These college and university students, they uh, also got into universities like Yale and Northwestern. Both of those are very prestigious universities that select only accomplished students. Or they're students who have chosen to go to colleges like Evergreen College with its very distinctive and non-traditional educational philosophy and its mission. They're savvy consumers in that case. They know. They, they chose deliberately to go there making an informed, mature choice about what kind of university they wanted to get their education from. 
We also learn from the protesters' own vocabulary, right? We read their manifestos posted online or published in student newspapers. We see them in action in various online video clips. Many of them have a very rich capacity for swearing, insults, other crudities. This is not snowflake rhetoric. And even so, all of the activists from childhood, even if they've grown up in rough neighborhoods or didn't have ideal parents, nonetheless, they have learned from their parents, from their extended families, from mom and dad, from teachers, their support network, Disney movies, when and when not to say, fuck you and your diaper disgusts me. They might be angry, but they are adults who know what they are doing. So I kind of like better the phrase, cry bullies. Cry bullies, I think, is uh, half right because the tears really are a tactic. They're not snowflakes, but bullies who are occasionally using tears as a tactic. But maybe it's on behalf of snowflakes, or maybe they're just sometimes sincere in their frustration, and maybe their frustration comes out in childish ways too. True. But some level of immaturity and frustration, that's always true of college students. And what is needed is an explanation for why we seem to be getting so much more of it in the past decade and why it's coming from the same direction and being leveraged to advance pretty much the same small set of beliefs and why it's being advocated in such an angry, adversarial, and in some cases physicalistic So I think what we need is a fuller understanding of the groups and the subgroups that make up colleges and universities, students, faculty, administration, and so on. And of course, students, faculty, and administration, those are not monolithic voices in themselves. Each has uh, various sub-factions and sub-contingencies as well uh, that are with rival beliefs, rival functions, and so on. In Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining postmodernism, skepticism, and socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, he writes an incredibly crafted and well argued insight into what postmodernism is, why it exists, and why it is dangerous applied in the wrong dose, in the wrong place, as it frequently is in this day and age. Postmodernism has been the most vigorous intellectual movement of the late 20th century. In his book, Hicks traces the roots of postmodernism all the way back to the Enlightenment era where he systematically charts how the age of reason sowed the seeds of unreason that was to follow, making a clear connection between postmodernism to history, leftist politics, and even the ugliness of contemporary art. Hicks presents his thesis with beautiful, easy-to-understand explanations that burn with logic and common sense. So if you've ever wondered why society holds so many assumptions about the world, and you want to understand the chaos of what is happening, Hicks's work in this book provides a huge piece to this puzzle. Why do sceptical and relativistic arguments have such power in the contemporary intellectual world? Why do they have that power in the humanities but not in the sciences? Why is a significant portion of the political left the same left that traditionally promoted reason, science, equality for all and optimism now switch to the themes of anti-reason, anti-science, double standards and cynicism? This book is by far the most helpful resource I've ever come across for understanding why the world is turning into a direction that I just can't comprehend. Pick up your copy of Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, available now on Amazon.com. While you're online, make sure to subscribe to the Open College podcast hosted by Stephen Hicks himself, and please leave a review for it on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. 
right. Second point, I want to uh, introduce bootleggers and Baptists as a term of art that I think is uh, explanatory of a significant amount of what goes on on, on university campus activism. Obviously, uh, factions abound on campuses and any, as, as we know, in any complex social unit, coalition building is needed to accomplish anything. But coalition building also makes for strange bedfellows, that is to say, apparent opposites uh, who join forces to outnumber or outmaneuver a common enemy. So I want to draw on uh, what's known as public choice economics or public choice theory a little more broadly. Nobel Prize winner James Buchanan and his colleague uh, Gordon Tullock are most famous for founding this uh, school of social thought. And a second-generation public choice theorist, uh, Bruce Yandel, I believe, is the one who gives us this bootleggers and Baptists terminology, drawing on a charming example from American political history to illustrate this dynamic. And the dynamic of bootleggers and Baptists was most prominently displayed in the Prohibition era. So a little bit of American political history to explain this. So if we think about Prohibition, you know, why did Prohibition come into existence? Well, you know, there was activists that were involved, and the activists had various agendas, and politicians were involved, and so forth. But who, we might ask, did more in the years leading up to 1920, when Prohibition was enacted, who did more to make the sale of alcoholic beverages illegal in the United States? Was it temperance activists or was it Chicago mobsters? Now here I was going to go on a little bit of a diversion, uh, insert some family history. I grew up in Canada and my uh, family has property on the north shore of uh, Lake Ontario, which uh, is just a few short miles from the American side of the, the shared lake, Lake Ontario. And family lore has it that my grandfather, when he was a young man, born early in the 20th century, benefited from prohibition in the following sense that the sale of alcohol was quite legal in Canada, but illegal in the United States. But it's a fairly short run if you have a boat and a couple of buddies. You can load up your boat on the Canadian side with alcohol purchased legally, starting out at midnight, run your way a few miles across Lake Ontario to the New York side, uh, meet your colleagues on that side, money and booze are exchanged, and of course at much higher prices than the purchase price in Canada, and then a few hours later you're back in Canada and ready for, for the next run in the future. So thanks to Prohibition for helping to enrich the Hicks family several generations ago. But let's go back to uh, the lead up to prohibition in the 1920s. Clearly, temperance activists, many of them religious, many of them Baptists, uh, not only Baptists, but many religious movements, but the Baptists prominent among them, were active in arguing that alcohol should be made illegal in the United States. And at the same time, though, the Chicago mob, you know, we, we hear much about Al Capone and so forth in the 1920s, they also had a strong interest in temperance uh, for the reasons that if alcohol is made illegal, well, they have an organization, they are organized crime, for example, and they have no problem with engaging in criminal activities. So the uh, federal government and all of the other police forces in the United States will 
put all of the legal manufacturers and distributors of alcohol out of business, in effect giving the mob a uh, monopoly, a government-protected monopoly on the production and distribution of alcohol in the United States. So here we have then two groups that we know both were very active in pushing prohibition. The temperance activists were lobbying politicians, and of course the Chicago mobsters were also lobbying politicians and bribing where appropriate. To, uh, in favor of prohibition. And the temperance activists and the Chicago mobsters recognized that they had a common goal in this case. And so even though they would ordinarily despise each other, I mean, what do Baptists typically think about Chicago mobsters? What do Chicago mobsters think about Baptists? You know, they despise each other. But nonetheless, they have a common political cause in this case that they can team up and join forces in order to outnumber the opposition. And jointly, they, of course, there are other factions involved. They were successful in getting a majority of politicians to enact prohibition. But there's an interesting dynamic here beyond the strange bedfellows uh, dynamic at work here. You know, one is that the mobsters are then able to use the so-called moral group, those who are raising moral objections against uh, uh, alcohol, as a kind of cover. And at the same time, the temperance activists, who are you know, not necessarily fully naive when it comes to morality and politics, and who themselves would not be interested in using muscular tactics and under-the-table tactics, nonetheless, they're willing to, uh, to join forces with people who are willing to use those kind of tactics in order to achieve their ends. So we have a very interesting coalition that is being used here. Both sides then will also uh, be engaged in the strategic use of pawns. You know, here are these poor victims, right, of alcoholism. And then, of course, uh, as the battle uh, over prohibition gets uh, uh, violent and nasty in various cases, people can point out, right, on the other side, that, hey, look at all of these nasty things that you're saying and doing and the violent tactics. They can engage in Mott and Bailey. They can say, no, 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 we're not really affiliated with those extreme peoples. We uh, are in favor of this more moderate position, so they can retreat to that. And then, of course, particularly in the case of the mob, the mob wants profit, but then there are lots of legal distributors of alcohol who are cutting into their profits. And so it's kind of a beautiful thing if you can use the, uh, the government to put your competition out of business and therefore increase your profit. So it's a very rich metaphor coming out of uh, a public choice. And so what we then have is from Bruce Yandel, this label, bootleggers and Baptists. And what I want to do is say that bootleggers and Baptists goes a long way to explaining some of what happens on campuses as well. So on campus, if we look at the activists, the power activists, we have a certain number of them who are quite amoral, that they are about power, and they will say so explicitly in their writings that they believe that power is the be-all and end-all, and that kind of ruthless tactics and even violence are necessary in order to advance one's end. So they've read their Friedrich Nietzsche, they've read their Karl Marx with his calls for violent revolution, they've read their Machiavelli about power politics, and they've read Karl Schmitt and so on. And so basically what they want to do is they are very intellectual strategists who want dominance over, you know, of course, certainly the university institutions, but then more broadly in society, they want to control and reshape it, and uh, power is, uh, is their goal. 
And they, as part of power politics, they want to put their rival professors and ideologies out of business. But of course, they can't too nakedly assert that ambition, so they are the bootleggers on campus. At the same time on campus, we have true believer professors and activists, right? They believe that they have the moral high ground in the fight against injustice and in favor of fairness. You know, however much you might disagree with their conception of justice and fairness, they believe, right, that they have a conception of justice and fairness, right, and that they're advancing a moral cause. So they are the quote unquote Baptists on campus. And to some extent, you know, they see themselves as victims or as spokespeople for victims. And they will say, you know, they, the bad guys, did it to us. So in self-protection, in order to make up for past wrongs or on behalf of those who are still vulnerable, we maybe reluctantly think that some toughness and some ruthlessness is called for and justified, but we ourselves might not want to, uh, to engage in that too much because we believe in the morality of our cause, even though we're open to some toughness and ruthlessness being necessary if we're going to make successful advances in the real world. So what then happens is that both the amoral, power-seeking theoreticians and activists and the more naive, moralist, true believers can do is see themselves as allies. They can use each other. One gets the moral cover that it needs. The other gets the muscle that it needs. And so jointly, they can work to convince and or coerce the administration, the administration standing in for the government, right, in this case, but to uh, to get the administration to give them more power, right, more privileges, more rights, and then at the same time to convince them to limit or to muzzle their rival ideologies. And so then we see the enactment of speech codes that will put certain words or certain ideas or certain books off limits. We will see that certain individuals will not be hired. Wrong-thinking professors and intellectuals will not be invited. And uh, if you know we have a certain number of students and uh, professors already within our campus who are engaged in wrong think, the administration will help us to isolate them or to force them out. Now, with that bootleggers and Baptist analogy in mind, let us return to the question of what's driving the dysfunctional versions of campus student activism. We all know what true crime is, but what about untrue crime? The true stories of innocent people whose lives have been ripped apart and who have not been allowed to tell their stories until now. Listen to Untrue Crime on the Possibly Correct Network as Diana Davison sheds light onto cases where reputations have been ruined, careers have been destroyed, and countless lies have been told. Find out what really happens when the finger of blame points to someone who's innocent. Subscribe to the Untrue Crime Podcast by going to www.untruecrimepodcast.com and follow the show on Facebook, Minds.com and Gab for all the latest news and releases. You can check out all of our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com. Uh, the third point I want to turn to is that the grievances uh, are often leverage points. One of the interesting phenomena is that in the events that trigger bursts of student activism in kind of angry and adversarial force, often the specific issue seems quite trivial. It's about a pronoun right, or a, an off-color joke that was said offhand. 
right, or Halloween costumes in the context of an event that's supposed to be fun. So the specific small issue, it seems like it's one that could be handled benevolently with discussion, some clarification, perhaps an apology, but it leads to incendiary anger and outrageous demands. And the specific issue is clearly then just a trigger right, for a larger, longstanding grievance. And the grievance, in many cases, is not meant to be resolved, even if the demand right, that the grievance has triggered is met. The grievances seem to be meant to fester and to be used in the service of a power politics strategy. Now, We've all experienced this dynamic in personal relationships, and sometimes it's easier to consider one-on-one situations uh, rather than mass group situations to clarify the dynamics. So think of a particular person. Once you've decided that you dislike that person, well, you can always find something about him or her that's irritating. And then the question is going to be, what do you do about that irritant and what do you do about that person? And often, the specific issue is not the issue. And here I think of an example. You know, my, uh, my parents, they, they tell this story laughingly now, uh, but they say it's a lesson that they learned uh, early in their marriage, that they, the biggest argument they had early in their marriage was over maple syrup one morning at breakfast. Now, they, uh, you know, they were young, they had uh, money issues, they had no money. <laughs> They had two small children, both of us under three. At that point, they were stressed out about all sorts of things. They were tired. You know, on the small children point, I'm pretty sure that it was my then infant sister who was causing them stress. I was always a great kid. But you know, at the morning breakfast table, there was no maple syrup, or it was the wrong kind of syrup, and it led to a huge and long argument right between them. But the point is that, of course, the issue wasn't maple syrup. Right? They had a built-up a significant amount of baggage, and there was a big uh, buildup of stress. And the syrup, the maple syrup, was just a releasing factor. Now, they say they learned about the lesson, they laugh about it now, but it teaches right an important point about social relations. A small irritant can be used as an excuse, triggering a general venting. And then depending on the character of those involved, Perhaps even scorched earth tactics that can you know, destroy relationships will be enacted. And the same thing then holds more broadly. You know, once you have decided that someone is your enemy and that you want to attack that enemy, there's always an issue available to, quote unquote, justify your actions. The particular issue is not the issue. Now, accordingly, the fact that students who are complaining students who have grievances, that the student complaints, they are often overwrought, that they're semi-informed, that they lead to extreme and seemingly outrageous demands, that's a feature right, of the situation. It's not a bug. In many cases, the student protester's point is to make outrageous claims, unreasonable demands, and the goal is precisely to make a small problem as major as they can and to see how much they can get away with. So it's a combination of ignorance and outrage and deliberately making mountains out of molehills. And it's calculated. There's a funny line from uh, social media comedian David Berger, who noted Riley, quote, campuses today are a theatrical mashup of 
1984, and Lord of the Flies, performed by people who don't understand these references. Unquote. Now, of course, that's a reference to George Orwell's 1984 with its theme of dystopian authoritarianism and William Golding's Lord of the Flies, you know, how easily a thin veneer of civilization can be stripped away and human beings can revert to savagery rather quickly. Now, of course, probably most of the thuggish activist types haven't read either 1984 or Lord of the Flies, so the ignorance is, uh, is amusing as well. But that doesn't mean that the thuggish behavior is stupid or uncalculated. It might be miseducated, but it's not uneducated. They know what they're doing. Speaking of the degree of education, right or not, miseducation, here's a, a fourth point that's worth mentioning here. We know the vast majority of students, before they go to college, they go to publicly funded government-run schools in the United States, Canada, and, and elsewhere. So we can and should ask over the last two generations, what educational philosophies and ideologies have been most prominent in those publicly funded government-run schools? And then, of course, many of them go on to college and university. And then we note that the progressive, postmodern, other strands of left-leaning in various degrees thought are the ones that have been dominating the universities for at least two generations now. The same is true of the public school system. So we have a somewhat paradoxical formulation here. We're supposed to believe and understand that sexism and racism and a host of other pathologies have taken over our culture, and so these extreme demands and measures are necessary to confront the, uh, you know, the disgustingness of our culture. But then at the same time, who has been educating our students for the last two generations. And so we're forced into this uh, strange dilemma. Either the intellectual and educational establishments have been grossly incompetent in teaching American youth, particularly about matters of sexism, racism, and so forth, or they have succeeded in molding a significant portion of the student body according to their precepts about sex, race, and so forth. And I think we should be open to both arguments. But when the same very narrow set of issues and tactics arises on many campuses across the country and beyond, that's not necessarily evidence of a conspiracy, but it is evidence of a shared set of ideas being leveraged. The left is a very big tent. Uh, it includes old-fashioned Marxists. It includes Rousseauians. It includes new left environmentalists. It includes postmodern adversarialists. It includes big government progressives and various cultural leftists who champion some mix of economic, racial, gender, and so on, controls, etc. They disagree among themselves on many, many points of details, but they do share a common framework that is anti-liberal, anti-individualist, and that is very pessimistic about our current society, blaming its ills on capitalism, neoliberalism, or something like that, whatever the term of the month is. My fifth point, students who are activist protesters have had expert guidance. Now, of course, students are young adults. They have their own minds. They have their own initiatives, but they are still in development and they can be shaped by prevailing orthodoxies. 
We do see it in art and theater students, for example. You know, they're cultivating their creative identities. They're experimenting dramatically with their personal styles. We see it in science students who are passionately developing their capacities to make objective judgments about natural complexity. In both cases, we see there's self-selection. You know, students in various university disciplines, they find them more attractive than others, partly on intellectual grounds, partly on personality style, lifestyle grounds. But in both cases, there is also expert training by the discipline's leaders. That is to say, the professors with whom the students spend a lot of time, those professors who encourage, who instill, and who exemplify the mindset and the character that is to be emulated. And we should expect that to be going on. We should expect and we want students to be experimental and for universities to be laboratories for philosophies, theories, and various experiments in living. That's exactly what they should be doing. And that is exactly what activist protester type students are doing. They go into courses that are activist and protester training grounds. Right? Uh, the professors are modeling the courses uh, precisely on those grounds. And so what the students are doing is they are applying the classroom lessons to taking over the classroom, taking over the campus more broadly, and that is preparation for their post-graduation life. It is a kind of professional training that's taking place in the laboratory that is the university. So what we see in the protesting students, and most of them do come from a handful of humanities and social studies departments and special studies departments, it's precisely the result of an academic subculture that is dedicated to a set of adversarial values. And it's drawn from a bottomless well, it seems, of curdled resentments. And there's a lot of philosophy behind that. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities, and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously, and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis, and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. Now, the sixth point I want to uh, raise here is to focus on one of those core ideas, where those adversarial values come from. Just one, and that is going to be the idea that we're supposed to feel sorry for the snowflakes or feel sorry for the victims or else. And it's the combination of those two. Feel sorry for us or else. 
Now, what's going on here is uh, a lot to do with ethical philosophy and what kinds of ideas have come to prominence in the kinds of ideologies that are spawning the intellectual and physicalist activists that we're dealing with on campuses now. Most of us have a natural benevolence toward other human beings. And I think that leads us to be helpful and to go out of our way for those who are struggling with life challenges, people who are sick, people who are elderly, pregnant women with special needs, the poor, and so on. But that natural benevolence can be captured by the moral philosophy of altruism, and it can be transformed right into the view that the rich and the powerful and the strong have a fundamental obligation to sacrifice for the poor, the powerless, and the weak. Not that our natural benevolence should lead us to go out of our way to some extent, but rather a more fundamental claim that we have an obligation to put those individuals first and to sacrifice for them. So here I'm using altruism, that term in its strong philosophical sense. It's, you know, like most philosophical terms, it's often used in watered-down ways. But in a philosophical sense, altruism means a principled other-ism. Alter, uh, other, and the ism, you know, self-explanatory. And altruism in this principled philosophical sense says that morality is not about your life, dreams, your goals, your happiness, your self-fulfillment. It has nothing to do with self-interest. It's nothing to do with egoism, to which altruism is often counterpoised. Rather, for altruism in this sense, morality is about your obligations to others. And it says that you are moral to the extent that you put others before yourself. You are selfless, literally. The self is of less moral significance. Now, that strong altruism can in turn be combined with another view, right, that says that it's the fault of the rich that the poor are poor. It's the fault of the powerful that the powerless are powerless. It's the fault of the strong that the weak are weak. Now, of course, sometimes that is true. Predation among humans is a real problem. But what we have here is a position then that says that it is a strong versus weak world, right? Zero-sum adversarialism is a fundamental fact, and so those who are in the position of being poor, weak, and powerless are necessarily victim. If we then combine those three points with another point, the view that the world is divided not into conflicting individuals primarily, but rather into conflicting groups. We collectivize the adversarialism. It's men versus women. It's whites versus browns versus yellows versus blacks. It's rich versus middling versus poor. It's Jews versus Muslims versus Christians versus atheists, and so on. Then what we do is we generate within ourselves a deep identification with any group that is failing any group that's in a position of weakness, any group that is unsuccessful or relatively powerless, and we generate an equally deep outrage against any group that is successful, rich, and powerful. And then we have social justice philosophy in its fullest sense, and we have a result. Anger becomes our dominant emotion against all forms of what we think are social justice, and that anger brings with it a feeling of moral empowerment to do anything for the cause of the weaker. 
And if we then see that the strong are not voluntarily sacrificing for the weak, as the strong form of altruism says they should be doing, if they are not atoning for causing the weak's problems in the first place, then as a matter of justice, they ought to be punished and forced to fulfill their obligations. And so what we now then have is a weapons-grade, collectivized form of altruism that is being deployed, and it then leads to the view that anything is legitimate on behalf of the weak. Now, in psychological terms, uh, I'm drawing on a, on a, on a great book by uh, Professor Barbara Oakley, called Pathological Altruism, published by Oxford University. I recommend it as an excellent startup collection on this uh, theme of pathological altruism. The term is a, is a beautiful one. Pathical altruism is also something that within left circles has been long recognized as a problem that uh, more reasonable leftists have, uh, have warned us about. So here I'm thinking about André Glucksmann, for example, a French intellectual of the last generation, but he was reflecting on his own experience with fellow leftist intellectuals and activists, and the way he put it was this, was how, quote, easy it was to pursue a passion for justice and revolution using obscene measures. So we have to ask how it is that normal benevolence can be so perverted to the point where people who start down a certain path uh, intellectually find that their natural benevolence is perverted into a willingness to engage in obscene measures in practice. Now, my seventh and final point for today is uh, going to be one of my favorite themes, and that is to say that philosophy is practical. What we are experiencing on campuses now is applied philosophy. The theory is delivered from students to their professors on hundreds of issues in dozens of courses. The theory is then put into practice. That's exactly what theory is supposed to do. And universities, in effect, are functioning as laboratory experiments for philosophy. And this has always been the case in the history of the university, as the actual functioning of universities has modeled the prevailing philosophical framework of the time. In the late medieval era, when uh, universities were first being institutionalized, they were institutionalized by means of the, or in terms of the prevailing philosophy of traditional authority, top-down instruction, and regurgitation. That was broadly pre-modern philosophy being applied. Now, over the centuries then that are comprising the Renaissance and early modernity, universities evolved toward a humanistic model of liberal education with its emphasis upon critical thinking, free speech, let the best argument prevail no matter who makes it. A new philosophy, humanism, modernism, culminating in the Enlightenment, came to be dominated, and universities then had evolved in order to institutionalize precisely that philosophy of liberal education. And now we are seeing a shift to postmodern anti-rationalism and group conflict power politics. And in keeping with the faster pace of contemporary life, the left has in one generation, as I telegraphed at the beginning of this podcast, it's gone from speak truth to power. That's what we heard in the 60s and 70s. And now what we hear is fuck truth and grab power. Speaking of the generation of the 60s and 70s, uh, I want to end with a quotation from the French postmodernist Jacques Derrida, who saw where things were going. And he warned us 
at that time not to be among those who, quote, turn their eyes away when faced by the as yet unnameable which is proclaiming itself, and which can do so as is necessary whenever a birth is in the offering, only under the species of the non-species, in the formless, mute, infant, and terrifying form of monstrosity, unquote. Monsters and monstrosity indeed, that's what we are grappling with. So, the battle for the soul of the university has been joined once again, and the principles have made their principles explicit and clear. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favourite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher.